0: This morning, I want I want to talk to you about this idea, and I I, I tell you I, there are many times I've heard preachers do this, and I think, oh come on, you're just you're 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 building it up for you, and I'm really not. I, I have wrestled and wrestled and wrestled with this morning, uh, with with what I felt like God wanted me to share um, until about two a.m. this morning, kind of going back and forth and and and. Just getting out of town. Anybody ever one of those days you get out of town and 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 everything that could go wrong goes wrong? I mean, every little thing, and you forget this and forget that, and things happen. And My oldest daughter, my kids have learned by now from the time that we spent doing itinerant ministry, traveling and speaking, and Mariah looked at me last night, and she said, Dad, I'm looking forward to tomorrow. Now, that's not unusual for my child to say that, but it is for her. and she said, uh, she said, I'm I'm really looking forward to tomorrow. And I said, why? She said, because we've had the hardest time getting God must have something great in store. And I don't say that lightly and uh I wrestle, but I, I want to talk to you this morning about this idea that Satan wants you to worship. Amen. Yeah, I didn't expect a lot of amens right there. I do believe that that this idea of worship is something that is so powerful. In our lives. But, but let me, let's move past sort of what we kind of think of worship for a second. And, and before I even read the scripture, I want us to make sure we're on the same plane. Because the more I have studied worship, and, and I've studied more than I've done anything else in my life, uh, both in undergrad and graduate school and, and seminars and conferences and teaching and all of those kind of things. And I discovered that the more I study worship, the less I know about worship. The more I think I've figured it out, the more I kind of study what it means and what it is and what it takes, I begin to discover that I don't have a grasp on it at all. And I think it's because it's something that's so big and it encompasses so much more than what we kind of, the tiny little sliver that we give to it. So let me just address a couple of myths real quick. Worship is not an event. Now, we use that term. We come together for worship. You know, we say that, and that's okay. But, but worship is more than just an event. Worship is not music or, or a genre of music, a style of music. It's become that. You can go to Walmart, and, and do they still make CDs? They do, do they? I don't know if they do at Walmart anymore. You used to be able to go and buy CDs. Or even if you go on to, uh, to your favorite streaming service, where, you know, you, you, you get music off the Internet. And you go and look, and you can go and look under styles of music. You know, there's country, there's uh, jazz, bluegrass, all kind of different things. Worship is in there. It's become its own style. Now, I don't know what style, what that is. What does that even mean? I look at that, and I kind of laugh. What's worship music? Because I could probably ask 10 of you and get 10 different answers. Because it depends on your preferences and what you like. I can tell you that worship is more than just music. Now, music's important. Don't get me wrong. I did it, for, like the pastor said, for many years. That was the sort of role that I took was to lead people with music. God says in His Word, Come before my presence with handshaking, hugs, scripture. I mean, that's good. Come before my presence with singing. That's sort of a mandate. He says, it's, he, I want you to do this. Something powerful about music. Music is an incredible tool. Uh, this world knows that. If I said to you right now and didn't even say anything and I said, <laughs> who's, who's craving a Big Mac right now? <laughs> I know I am. I wish I hadn't <laughs> have sung that. The, the, music's powerful. Madison Avenue has been using it for years to put things and sink things deep into our hearts and minds. God's word tells us, come before my presence of singing. But worship is not just music. It's bigger than any of that. The the best way for me to grasp kind of what it means for us as individuals is this idea. uh, And and it comes really from, from two words that came together to make our English word worship. And I love being in the States when i want to go to West Africa. I can't use this example because it only works with English. There they're translating everything into French and it doesn't work. But in English we have this word worship. And understand that was actually two words. It was worth-ship. And it got kind of pushed together like everything else. Well, I understand what ship means. We understand that suffix, right? Can we do a little English lesson real quick? I promise I'm going to get to the scripture in just a second. Here's, 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 here's some English for us. That, that suffix ship, if, if you are a good craftsman, you build stuff really well, okay? We would say that you exhibit good craftsmanship, right? If you write really well and you, you write with a, a pen or pencil, we, we say that you have good penmanship. Are you getting it? If you don't rob God and you pay your tithes and give in offerings... That was free, by the way. Um, We say you're a good steward or you exhibit good steward. Okay, so we understand what that means, right? Well, then worship is the idea that you are good at giving worth. You're good at giving worth. You give worth to where it's due. That's worship. And that is much bigger than a song than anything else. Yes, it is important that we do it when we come together. We are individual temples that when we come together are, are living stones that create something bigger, and an inhabitation for Him. God knows and, and, and establishes His. I, I love this, I, and I hear this all the time, and I don't mean to contradict this. We'll say, you know, God shows up, or He's here, or two or three are gathered together, in His name, He's with us, He is. But the Psalms tell us that when we worship Him and we sing His praises, He doesn't just show up. He literally enthrones Himself in the midst of that. That means he establishes his kingdom in the midst of that. And in his kingdom, he doesn't like sickness. He doesn't like the things that we have to deal with in this world. And in his kingdom, he establishes his kingdom in this place. That's why when you're in that place and pastor says he can feel it and it's here, that's why things happen when we're together. Because it's about something bigger than all of us. Because we come together in habitation for him. So corporate worship is important. But you're also individual worshipers that need to give God worth. And that kind of lifestyle every day has got to happen on a regular basis. We think that this is the place we come to recharge so we can make it till next Sunday. When God says this is the day to come and celebrate what you've been doing all week long. See, God wants you to worship Him on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. He wants you to give worth to Him And you do that by establishing priority in your life. You put him first. That means his kingdom, his word, his ways come before the ways of this world that we live in. And you operate according to those principles. And when you do that, you give it worth. Worth is also established in how you see something. You know value isn't what something's really worth. I love when my son comes off of Amazon and says, Dad, I can get this $80 shirt for $10. And I said, no, no. It's a $10 shirt. It is. It's worth what you pay for it. See, I started to throw my wife under the bus there, but I went with my son because that's going to be much easier for me down the road. She will often get home from Ross. I hate that place. It's of the devil. And, and, and she will tell me, she will tell me, it's a wonderful place. Um, she will come home and tell me how much she saved. And I'm like, that's not the information that's important to me. What did you spend? That's. And so say, no, I got this dress. It's a $100 dress and I got it for $30. I said, no, it's a $30 dress because that's what you paid for it. Value is determined by other people. Yeah, right. Listen, if the fact that you can, they'll charge you $100 for a potato chip that looks like Abraham Lincoln on eBay, tells me that value is determined by somebody else, right? So we give worth to God when we treat people with the value he gives them. And the last time I checked, he died for them. So when you treat that boss that you can't stand, that neighbor that drives you crazy, when you treat them like God died for them, instead of with the value you see them with, you give him worth. You worship every day. You go out and get that trash can even though it's not yours and it's their job and it's somebody else's. Can I tell you, you worship every time you put your grocery cart back where it belongs when you get done with it. Even if it's raining. Because you value somebody else above yourself. That's the very nature of what worship is. When you live like that all week long and then you gather together... See, we have this this phrase, we used used to sing this song uh, when I was a kid. We bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord. And that comes right out of the scriptures. But we've never done that. We sing it, but we didn't do it. We showed up and tried to cobble together something and offer sacrifice. And we hadn't really done anything sacrificial all week. You ever come to church? I'm right here, I'm raising my hand first. You ever come to church? It takes you about the first two and a half, three songs to even enter in. You know why that is? It's because you really haven't done anything. You haven't brought a sacrifice because you haven't lived sacrificial. You haven't thought about anybody but yourself all week. And when you come here, it takes you the first two or three songs to, for Tony to get enough remind you of why you're here. You ever see somebody that walk in the door and from the, the, the first downbeat, they're at 30,000 feet. You know why that is? Because they've lived a worship lifestyle all week. And when they walk in the door, they're, they brought the sacrifice with them. They came prepared. None of that's in my notes. But it's important for us to understand what worship is when I talk about it. When I'm talking about a song, when i talk many about anything else, we're talking about giving worth to the King of kings, the Lord of lords, giving him value. Look in your Bibles in Matthew chapter 16. There's a story I want to read here. And I'm going to allow you to... Uh, I'm going to allow you to do what the rabbis used to do. Because we've got it backwards in the Christian church, but in the the New Testament, the rabbis would always sit in reverence when they read the scriptures. So I'm going to let you be kind of rabbinical today. Verse 13 says this. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He, he Then he asked him, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. Whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Then he sternly warned the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of the religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day he would be raised from the dead. But Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him For saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said. This will never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view and not from God's. Thank you, Father, for your word. Lord, bless and anoint it. Let it sink deep into our hearts today and not leave us quickly. Touch me, Lord, as I communicate the word you have for this congregation. Let us be changed in your presence today and not leave the same way we came. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's get a little context here. In Matthew, we see Jesus talking about the kingdom of heaven a lot. I mean, a lot. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven is this, the kingdom of heaven. He's talking that It's the major theme of Matthew. And his disciples did not understand it's like he was speaking one language and they were hearing in another. They, didn't, they could not grasp this idea of the kingdom. In Matthew 14 and 15, we see Jesus feeds 5,000. He deals with some Pharisees. He heals a bunch of people. Then he feeds 4,000. Then the Pharisees ask for a sign after he fed 5,000 and 4,000. There's a lot of humor in the Bible. Jesus dismisses them real quick, and then he warns the disciples in that moment. He says, be careful of the yeast of the Pharisees. Now here's how I know the disciples didn't understand kingdom. At that moment they began arguing and saying, Who? Did you bring? You forgot the bread. Did you bring the bread? You forgot. He's, talk, he's worried about the bread. We didn't bring bread. Now he's just multiplied bread twice. Fed 9,000 men that we know of, not to mention the rest of it. And he says one thing about yeast. and The disciples are all talking about who forgot the bread. Jesus has to look at them and says, I'm not talking about yeast and bread. I'm talking about yeast. Not yeast. Yeast. And they could not grasp him. I'm convinced that my wife and I talk two different languages. We, she can be in the kitchen. And I can be in, in, in the living room, especially in the fall. I'm um, watching uh, God's team play football at the FedEx field. You shut up. And, and I was talking to Jeremy, by the way. That was, that was for June. And, uh, and, and, and she can yell from the kitchen and say, can you come take this garbage out? Now, something happens to it in the language and something, whatever. And I hear her say, can you take the garbage out? That's what I think she says. And so I say, uh, yes, yeah, two minutes till halftime. That seems reasonable, right? Next thing you know, I hear her stomping out the front door with the garbage. And I think, what in the world just happened? Now, this was before we had children, because now I don't touch garbage. I don't refill my drink. I don't do anything anymore. That's why we had them. And I let them know that. I let them know that all the time. I tell my son, your job is to refill my drink and bring me the remote. That's why I had you. That's why you're on this earth. Anything else that you get out of it, that's benefit, but... That's why you're here, so don't forget that. So it was before kids, and I hear this happen, and I think, what just happened? And I realize what happened is, what she said was, hey, do you love me more than that football game? That's what she really said. What I heard was, can you come take the garbage out? And I responded, there's two minutes till halftime. What she heard was, no, I love the Redskins more and you can take the garbage out yourself. That's what she heard. That's not what I said. But... And so I'm convinced that we speak two different languages. And I think the same thing was happening here with Jesus. He was speaking kingdom. And the disciples weren't. They didn't get it. They were struggling with this. We see here in, in chapter 16, this is the context. And Jesus gets to this point and he basically says, listen, who, who do people say that I am? What, what's, what's the word on the street? Oh, well, some say you're John the Baptist, Elijah, maybe one of the other prophets. And then he kind of turns and says, but who do you say that I am? Because I really don't care what other people think. What's more important to me is what, who do you say that I am? And Peter, and I love it that it's Peter because Peter was always getting stuff wrong. Peter lived with like a size nine and a half right there. I mean, you know, he, he, he was constantly saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing. I mean, you know, even when he had a chance, he walked on water for a second and then blew that. And I mean, you know, he's, he was constantly doing stuff, messing it up. And Peter, of all people, says to him, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You're the Son of God. Jesus looks at him and says, you got that right. You didn't even get that. You got that from heaven. You didn't get that from man. God revealed that to you. And then he blesses him with this incredible blessing. I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. Uh, Whatever you forbid on earth we forbid in heaven. What you permit on earth. He gives him this incredible authority. And this is my favorite part. And then he says, now don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody what, what you, and Can you imagine, Peter, the first time he got something right? He gets it right for the first time. And he's like, what? I got it right? I heard from, I heard from heaven. I was, I'm hearing from heaven. Hey, guys, did you hear that? I'm hearing from heaven. I mean, he starts out, he gets his own 501c3, he has a prophetic ministry. He's got this, you know, gets him a tent. He's ready to go. He's like, I'm hearing from heaven now. I'm ready to go. And Jesus says, oh, no, no, no you can't tell anybody. I want you to, t- don't tell anybody that. That's, we're, going to, we're going to talk about that later, but we're not going to tell anybody. Poor Peter. Then Jesus, the Bible says, he begins to, right after that, he begins to tell them plainly. He's not, he's not telling parables. He's not telling stories. He's not talking about a seed in the ground three days later. He's not doing all that. He's, he's talking to them plainly, the Bible says. And he's telling them, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. They are going to beat me. The religious leaders are going to really persecute me. They're going to actually kill me. And then in three days, I'm going to raise it. He's telling them. And at this moment, Peter, the Bible says, in this, in this translation, it says reprimands, and a lot of translations, it says rebukes. The actual Greek word there is epitomeo. And, and I'll never forget, I used to think, and I guess it's, it's, I'm scarred from childhood, I'm almost 50, and so I'm, I'm at that age. I know some of you are thinking, that's yeah, you're real young. And the rest of you are like, what? You're ancient. Okay, so we'll, y'all can argue amongst yourselves later, but Right now, I'm feeling, I'm at that place where I'm feeling older. And I realize that a lot of the way I see Jesus in the Bible is because when I grew up, any depiction of Jesus in any kind of media was either on a flannel graph board, which didn't talk at all. So Jesus either sounded like my mom. Or in any kind of media or movies, Jesus was a really pale, effeminate British guy. I mean, that's the, that's the movies I had. That's the images that I had. Peter. Come thou to me. It, you know, it was like, I don't know why Jesus has a British accent. But I'd always pictured this site, this, this story. I always pictured Peter kind of getting Jesus and saying, Jesus, come here. Come here. Look, What are you doing? Don't, don't talk about dying. I mean, we just got our numbers up. We're doing really good at summer, and the numbers are still good. People are still coming. I mean, it helps that you're giving away free bread and fish. That's good. That's a good thing. We, we got attendance is really great. And you start talking about dying, we're going to lose this whole thing. It's going to go south quick. Don't, don't do that. Don't talk about that. I would, I would just, as a consultant, Lord, I would let you know that that's probably not the best way to grow this congregation. That's kind of how I had pictured it in my mind. And then I actually dug into that word rebuke. More importantly, that Greek word epitomeo. Do you know where else that word is used? It's when Jesus cast out devils. It's the word he used. It's when he looked at the winds and waves and told them to calm down and screamed at them. This was not some mild suggestion. This was a harsh rebuke. Peter pulls him aside and says, Jesus, what are you doing? You need to shut up. Now, you think that sounds bad here. Imagine what that sounded like to Jesus. And and I wrestled with that first. I thought, how could Peter do that? Maybe he didn't understand who he was talking to. Oh, wait. Just a few verses ago, he looked at the same man and said, You're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. He knew exactly who he was talking to. He do not have an excuse. How could Peter do that? What in the world would cause him to think that he had the right to look at Jesus and say, Heaven forbid it? Then I went back a few verses and realized Jesus gave him the keys. Jesus told him, "You, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. And so Peter has got the brand new keys to the kingdom. And he's like, I'm going to try these out. Jesus says, I'm going to die. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be persecuted. I'm going to raise in thrive. And Peter says, <clears throat> I forbid it. Let's see how this works. And Jesus looks at him and says, hey, Satan, I don't want to see your face right now. Now, I don't know you've ever had anybody call you Satan you ever been in your prayer time and you're asking God for a word and he calls you Satan anybody had that experience I mean I can't even imagine what Peter must have felt like here in front of all his things we have this thing at camp we always tell our leaders make sure you you praise in public and 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 then correct in private it's just a good leadership principle yeah Jesus didn't he hadn't read John Maxwell yet I guess and so Jesus, in front of everybody, looks at Peter and says, Hey, Satan, get out of my sight. I don't want to see you. Now, I think Jesus knew that Peter wasn't Satan. But he defines it in that next verse because he not only calls him Satan. He says, here's why, Peter, I called you Satan. Because you have in mind the things of man and not of God. He says you're seeing things merely from a human point of view and not from God's. And so Jesus in that moment basically has defined for us what it means to do the work of Satan. You walk out of here today, and you don't think like the kingdom, and you start thinking like this world, and you put yourself first. You're doing the work of Satan. Yeah, I know that sounds harsh. But that's what Jesus said. He says, when you think like man, when you don't think like the kingdom, when you don't put kingdom principles into work, he says, to you right now, Peter, you're like Satan to me. You're a trap to me. See, here's the reality. Peter had lots of passion. He had lots of zeal. He had lots of worship. He, he, he loved Jesus. I don't think there's any doubt of that. And he had this newfound authority. He had tons of authority. But he didn't have a renewed mind. He had not been transformed in God's presence. When we talk about worship, one of my favorite verses when we talk about worship... Is what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12. He says it in this. This translation says, and so. Most of our old translations use the word therefore. And so, dear brothers and sisters. And we got to stop right there. You can't start with therefore. You can't start with and so. If I walked up to Travis and hadn't seen him in a while last night and said, hey, and so, he'd been like, and so what? What are you? Like I just picked up from something else. Well, here's the reality. Uh, I don't know if many of you know this, but this was a letter. And when Paul, how many of you write letters to somebody or email people and you title them chapter 1, verse (laughs) 1? Do you do that? Yeah. Paul didn't either. Somebody else came along and did that after fact. And I'm glad they did because I could say Romans 12 and you knew right where to turn. So I'm glad that we've got it organized. But this was a letter. And so he didn't write that. So let's back up and see where the and so comes from. See where the therefore comes from. Verse 36 of chapter 11 says this. For everything comes from Him and exists by His power and is intended for His glory. All glory to Him forever. Amen. I think the amen there threw the chapter verse guys off and they thought, ooh, new chapter. But really, Paul's just interjecting here. And he's saying, when you understand that everything is from Him, everything is through Him, and everything is for Him, therefore... I beg of you, he says, I beseech you, I'm pleading with you to give your bodies to God because of all he's done for you. Let there be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he'll find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Paul identifies it and said, this is true worship. This is what worship is when you give all of you. Now, I love the fact he uses the word sacrifice, but I like the fact that he says living. That lets me know that we're not going to have Kool-Aid here in a minute and I'll wait for the comment and... Some of you scared because that's, maybe that's more common in these parts than I thought. We're not talking about a dead sacrifice. He says, I want you to be sacrificed, but I don't want you to be living. But he does say sacrifice. sacrificed. I want you dead. Can I, can I wrap up? And, and I, I, please forgive me. If your pastor's ever used this phrase, I have in the past. So I, I don't think there's anything wrong or evil with it. But, but recently, I, 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 when I read this verse, I realized something. This idea we have that God, and I've said it before, God wants you to be, He wants you to come to this altar and empty yourself. He wants an empty vessel He can use. Anybody ever heard that? I've heard that. And that's that's really good Buddhist theology. That's what they teach. Empty yourself. Be filled with light. Do you know that God, can can I change that a little bit? God doesn't want an empty vessel. God wants you dead. He wants you to die to everything. Now, he wants you to be living, but he wants you to be dead. And even if you use the concept of the potter and the clay and the empty vessel, you know what a potter does when he makes the clay, when he has that empty vessel, you know the first thing he does? How many of you have prayed, God, please come and break me. Kill everything off in me that doesn't need to be of you. And Paul defines it this way. He says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. Don't be conformed to this world. But let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know what God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. He says your thinking is what drives your worship, your passion, your zeal. And the problem is, Peter had all kind of worship and passion and zeal, but his thinking had not been renewed. He had not been transformed. That, that Greek word for transformation or being transformed by letting him change your thing is the, the Greek word metamorpho, which, which is where we get the word metamorphosis. It doesn't just mean change a little bit. Be a little, it means completely transformed, completely change. And the reality is we all worship. We all have that in us. We were created that way. You're created to worship. Uh, it, it isn't something that we do teach it. You know, I, I, worship leaders like Tony and I have been going to conferences for years. I had a friend one time, and he said it like this: He's from Colombia and had this real thick accent. He says the problem is we go to conferences and conferences and conferences, and we try to how to worship, how to worship. We don't need to know how to worship. We need to be reminded it's our job. It's not that we don't know how to worship. It's not that we don't know, it's innate, it's in us. Can you tell, I, I, once a year, generally in the last few years, Nathan and I try to make a pilgrimage up to FedEx Field. I said that, like, some of you are like, does he really worship that? No, we don't really, work, but, but we go up to FedEx Field to go watch America's team, the Redskins play, and... and Something that I've recognized is something that we've noticed. I've noticed over time every time we go. Do you know, not one time I have ever gone in, and they do lots of stuff. They wand you down, they pat you, they scan things, they do all kinds of sort of things before you can go in. Not once have they handed me a pamphlet uh, to the pregame workshops on how to cheer for the team. They don't have those. Do you know why? Because you don't need those. On the rare occasion that they score, when they, when they, when they do so, when they do something fantastic, which I wish for more often, it's amazing. Nobody had to teach me. Nobody had to show me. Suddenly, I stand up out of my seat. I rise. I lift my hands in the air. I shout with a voice of triumph. Now, some of you are offended right now that I'm comparing worshiping God to worship. I'm just saying that built into us is that natural, innate thing that God gave us to worship. And here's the reality. Satan wants you to worship. He wants you to worship you. Because that's the very heart of who he is. He wants you to worship. He just doesn't want you to do it with a transformed mind. And if your mind has not been renewed and transformed, you will, instead of worshiping the God that created you, you will worship his creation. So Satan wants you to worship. He just doesn't want you to do it with a renewed mind. Where does renewal come from? Well, that that word transformation, that that uh, metamorpho word, is not just a one-time thing. It's a a continual thing. That word renewal doesn't mean, you know, do it once and check it off. I I, I grew up that way. I grew up thinking that that was the the checklist. I'm I'm about five generations deep in this movement. My great-great-grandfather left the Methodist church where they kicked him out. When he got filled with the Holy Spirit and, and he joined the Church of God and, and it's been, I, I didn't, I'm, I'm sure I had a choice at some point, but I don't remember having that choice. But in, 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 when I was a kid growing up, and this is my bad, this is nothing that the, 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 the denomination taught or anything like that. But growing up in church, I used to feel like there was this checklist and I would hear that checklist every time we had a testimony service. Because everybody would stand up, and the first thing they'd say is, I'm saved, sanctified, filled with the Holy Spirit, member of the Church of God. And I I used to think, I need to check those off. I want want to be able to say that. I want to be able to to make that statement. I I want to be able to. And so those things for me became more of a checklist than something that I lived. Here's the thing. We were created in God's image. God is triune. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So he created us very much in the same way. We have a a mind, a a body, a a spirit, a soul. And and we can argue about which are the three, but we have this kind of triune makeup of who we are. Paul says this in Romans chapter 8, a few verses before he he talks about being a living sacrifice. He says this in verse 6. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. But letting the spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. He's he's letting us know, before it even gets to the part about making a sacrifice, that your mind is the thing that's going to control where you're at. And if you let the Spirit guide you, it's going to lead you to life and peace. But letting your sinful nature guide you do that way. We understand renewal. We understand in the physical, there are a lot of things that can help us. To me, one of the greatest things that can help us is is to breathe. Now, I'm not going to... I'm not going to turn into a yoga class here, because that's not a good either, But we're, I, I, I want to make sure we understand that when this is the physical nature, somebody will tell you physiologically the best way when somebody's upset, was the first thing we say to them? Just breathe. Take a breath. Well, you know, when, when, you're, when you're working out, if you're lifting big weights, what's the one thing they remind you to do? Make sure you breathe. Why is that? Because oxygen is so important, and physiologically, when you breathe in the physical... That oxygen has a way of helping you physically. It calms you down. It brings you life and peace. Well, when you look at the scriptures, it's no different. In the Old Testament, that word for breath was ruach. It's the same word we see in Ezekiel 37, 9, when God breathed into that mighty army that he had raised up from dry bones. In the New Testament, we see it a lot of places. In Acts seventeen twenty-five. Paul is talking about the unknown, unknown God there in Athens, and he's talking about describing him, and he says he is the one who gives life and breath, pneuma, there in the Greek, to everything. That breath of God is transformational, and it renews our minds. So, what do we need to have renewal? We need the Holy Spirit. What does it take to have true transformation? The Holy Spirit. That's why you hear us talk about it all the time, because to have true renewal and to do this. And can I tell you, the Holy Spirit is not just something you check off a list. God, right. I, 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 know, I know people that had checked that box 40 years ago and they haven't been with the Holy Spirit in 38. But they'll be, I tell you, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. They don't, haven't had a relationship with him in forever. They're not full of the Holy Spirit. And that's what I see in every aspect of the New Testament when they're looking for leaders, when they're looking for different things. He doesn't say, find men who had an encounter with God sometime back and and, and check that box. He says, find men that are full of the Holy Spirit. That have experienced true transformation, renewing of their mind where it's every day, every day. Fill me, fill me, fill me. I need to be full of the Holy Spirit. I need to be renewed. Paul talks about it like this in Ephesians 5. He gives us this list, and it's a list of great things. He starts in verse 15, says, "So be careful how you live, don't live like fools, but like those who are wise." That means don't be a Raider fan, by the way. I'm just saying. <laughs> Number 16, he gives us this whole list. I didn't mean I didn't come up here intending to wear you out, Jeremy, but it's just so much fun. Verse 16 says this: "Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days." That's good. "Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do." Then verse 18 says, Don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, singing hymns, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs among yourselves, making music to the Lord in your hearts, and give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What? we got this great kind of practical list, and right in the middle of it, he throws this in and says, Don't be drunk with wine because it will ruin your life, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I I used to see that and think, Paul, where are you going with that? I understand that being drunk is a bad thing. You said it will ruin us. But he does something unique here, and he compares it to the Holy Spirit. Now, I didn't really have a grasp on this until it was a few years ago. We were actually preaching uh, in, in Withful, just right down the road, and, and that Saturday night we checked in to our hotel, uh, that, that Comfort Inn, right off the interstate there, and it's right next to the interstate, so it gets a lot of transient traffic. You know, and we had we had gotten in late, and uh, we had uh, like we did last night, we dropped a couple of kids off with the pastor, because that's always an easy thing to do. And in that house, it was the same way, you know, so we dropped, we dropped Mariah and Nathan off with Maddie and Micah. And then we got over to the hotel. We were over there late, and we walked in, and we we're going to our room, and I got my arms full. I'm trying to get, And when we stepped into the hallway to go to our room, I could see this guy leaning up against the door. Now, I instantly could smell and tell what his problem was. He was leaning there, and he was knocking, but he was kind of knocking like this. You know. And I'm wondering, does he belong in that room? Does he, you know, I've got my two little girls with me at the time, and I'm just trying to get past him quickly because I don't know what he's going to say or do. You know, Many of you have encountered someone that's intoxicated, and it's like they're not in their right mind, right? I mean, they're just something different, so they'll say anything. They might use words you shouldn't. I mean, you never know, so I'm just trying to get the girls past. Now, at this point, my, my little, uh, Maggie was still with us, and she, she was probably about four at that time. Just nod, honey, just give me, okay. She's about four, let's say she was four. She was real little, and, and, and we walked past quickly. we got in the room, and Maggie was very observant. We got in the room, and I locked the door. I Maggie mean, didn't just lock the door, I locked it, and did the whole, you know. And, then, and Maggie said to me, she turned to me, she goes, Daddy, why was that drunk man in the hallway? Now, my four-year-old at that time didn't have a lot of experience with drunk men, Definitely not in our house. She didn't go to that many honky-tonks or anything like that. I mean, she, she didn't frequent those places at four. She didn't have a lot of experience. And I, and I thought to myself, why did? how could my four-year-old recognize these characteristics, these attributes of this guy? It's amazing that he was so drunk that even my four-year-old, with what little tiny limited experience he had, could recognize that that was intoxication. And then it hit me. This is what Paul's saying. (laughs) He's saying, I want you to stay so full of the Holy Spirit that even a four-year-old could tell. I want you, don't be drunk with wine. Don't be drunk with wine. But instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. He compares him in that way. Most of us have been filled with the Holy Spirit And we are so good at keeping it incognito, nobody knows. Paul says, it ought to be obvious. You ought to overflow on everything you touch. Now that doesn't mean you bust into girls' bathrooms and speak in tongues, but that... (laughs) Unless it's needed, unless it's necessary. But can I tell you something? When you need to touch heaven... It doesn't matter where you are, who you're with, who's around. When you are full of the Holy Spirit, you know, it go, you go. It's there. It overflows on everybody else. And you know what else it was? According to scripture, it was a witness to every woman in that bathroom. They knew this wasn't natural. This was supernatural in this moment. That's why one lady started yelling out Jesus because she knew who he was praying to. It was obvious. It's not a one-time experience. We've got to seek him every day. We've got to stay full of the Holy Spirit. If we want to worship the way God intended us to, if we want our worship and our passion and our zeal to be applied where it needs to be applied, to know the good and perfect and pleasing will of God, we've got to be transformed. Not copying the behaviors and patterns of this world, but being transformed by allowing Him to change the way we think through the power of the Holy Spirit. We've got to have that in our lives. See, Satan does want you to worship. He wants you to come here every Sunday and sing songs. He wants you to come here every Sunday and do karaoke and go home and feel like you're a little better than everybody else you live around because you did something religious. Satan's happy with that. He's fine with that because that's toothless. That, That has no impact at all. It doesn't change anything at all. But when you come on a daily basis and you ask God to fill you, to keep you full and overflowing in the power and transformation of the Holy Spirit leading and guiding your life, then your worship goes where it belongs. Then your worship becomes a living sacrifice where you are completely denying self and giving everything over to Him. And it will become so obvious even a four-year-old can tell. That's the kind of power he wants you to have. Not so that you can say, I'm better than everybody else. So that you'll spill on everybody else. So that your neighbors won't be able to deny the fact that you serve an almighty God. So that your boss, even the one that doesn't like you, will know that you are different than everybody else around. Because you are led from different principles, from a transformation that is continually changing the direction and how you think. And allowing your worship, your worth, what you give to God to come from a different place. That's what he wants for us. That's what he has for us. Will you bow your heads right now? Just as a way of focus. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the way it breathes into our lives. God, I pray right now that if there's those here today that need to make a choice just off the bat to follow you, maybe they've never seen transformation, maybe they they don't even understand what I'm talking about because they've never made that choice, that they would make that choice today. That as the Holy Spirit draws them and has been drawing throughout this last few minutes that they would have the courage from their heart with their words and their mouth to acknowledge that you are their God, that you are their Lord. That they want to repent. They want to change direction. They want to stop going the way they were going. They want to follow after you. They know that you came, that you died, that you rose again, and they believe that and they want you to be the Lord, the supreme authority, the owner of their life. God, if there are those here today that need to, I pray right now that they would just begin to pray that. God, I pray for those of us that have made that confession of faith, maybe have never encountered an an infilling the empowerment of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that they today would ask you for that gift. That they would cry out to you and say, God, fill me. Overflow my life. Empower me, Lord. God, for those of us that have have checked that box God I pray that you will give us a hunger and a passion a desire to stay full of the Holy Spirit to come and encounter you not just as an experience or an event but as someone who wants to live in relationship and dwell in a fullness that overflows onto every aspect of who we are God thank you for doing a work in your people today.